This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Sinclair and his partner Harlico, whose homeland is Japan, go cycling to celebrate Christmas in the Catlins of the South Island. Roy, once head of the New Zealand chapter of the World Peace Bill, sought a replica bill to site at the Christchurch Botanic Gardens. Sleepless nights by firelight, the stranger in this town. By talking long and singing songs, I have laid my loneliness down. So long days end with peaceful friends, there is no richer David Longy's government enacts dramatic anti-nuclear laws banning nuclear-powered and armed ships from New Zealand waters. It makes me proud to be a New Zealander, seeing our nation heading a list of countries that contributed something of significance to world peace, a shift in New Zealand's often military stance. Never has international cooperation on questions of nuclear weapons and disarmament been so crucial, clearly, Many Kiwis go along with the government keeping the nuclear menace from our shores. Navies armed with such weapons are unwelcome. Any deployment of nuclear power, whether intended as a deterrent or not, is one step closer to total annihilation. It's grotesque, and the world knows it from the destruction of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. When we hear the news that a world peace bell is cast, loaded on the Japanese peace ship Topaz, bound for Auckland, we sense the public's behind our bit to lament the terrible suffering for civilians who survive the atomic attacks on Japan. It must be its perception of peace being a prevailing issue for Kiwis that New Zealand Courier Post transports free of charge to Christchurch the long-awaited New Zealand's own peace bell, it's a project keenly supported by the Christchurch City Council, but it's over to we of New Zealand chapter of the World Peace Bell Association, not ratepayers, to see to it being sited in the beautiful botanic gardens. The city's architectural designer, Crispin Skur, designs a striking housing to set the New Zealand Peace Bell apart. But the chapter needs race, $100,000 it takes before Crispin's computer image will be realised in real life. However, peace proves to be a hard sell when we approach other businesses to contribute. One who rises to the challenge of confronting the public with the need to push for peace is a former Hamilton Girls High head prefect, Kate Dews, who comes to know us well as one of the New Zealand chapter of the World Peace Bell Association. I knew Roy Sinclair first in 2006 when he was part of a committee we were on which was to set up a World Peace Bell for Christchurch and we set up an association with mainly the City Council person Barbara August and myself and a few others from the Botanic Gardens 
really implementing what was the peace city ideal that had been adopted by our city in Christchurch 2002 to acknowledge Christchurch as the first nuclear-free city 20 years before that and as the first peace city in New Zealand. So Roy was the powerhouse behind getting this World Peace Bell for Christchurch and having it in the Botanic Gardens. He was an absolute powerhouse of commitment. He'd ridden his bike all over Japan and built up support with the World Peace Bell Association in Japan. But what's significant about this particular bell is that it came in a tradition of peace bells that had been gifted by a Japanese group. And in fact, it was a former mayor of Iwo Jima and Shikoku who presented a token of peace to the UN in 1954, and that was this bell. It's built in the middle of the UN area where I've been to, and what's wonderful is that it's actually based on soil from Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And every time when the UN General Assembly starts, every year in about October, there are prayers held there and often led by the UN Secretary General. So it's a very important international organisation. And what's good about it is that in 1982, a World Peace Bill Association was formed in Japan and they had cooperation from ambassadors representing 128 nations. But in the Christchurch Bell is made of coins and medals and mixed with copper. And that's from 103 countries that this is done. There's only 21 bells worldwide in 17 countries. So... We're very fortunate to have one in Christchurch and Roy's been part of our group with the Disarmament Security Centre and the World Peace Bell Association and we use the bell in the Botanic Gardens as a focus for lots of groups, particularly honouring what happened at Hiroshima and Nagasaki in 1945 and the International Days of Peace, for example, the 21st of September is a UN International Day Against Nuclear Tests there's one also for elimination of nuclear weapons, and there's a disarmament week. So what happens often is groups go to the bell, and they ring the bell in the garden, and it's a wonderful place for people to gather, because there's a camphor tree that's been planted there from the mayor of Nagasaki, and there's a ponamu just beneath the bell, which when it rings, it actually sounds in Nagasaki, where I've actually placed some matching ponamu from that, under what is a sculpture in the Nagasaki Peace Park, which was donated by the government and by the six cities of New Zealand, including Christchurch. And that ponamu is a spiritual link between our two cities. So every time it is rung, we know that it is connecting with Japan. And so that's very significant and was very significant for Roy. So we're very lucky to have it and... We hope that anyone coming to Christchurch will come and visit it in the Botanic Gardens. Dr Kate Dews, New Zealand Order of Merit, is long acknowledged as an advocate of non-violence. She went from Hamilton Girls High School on to be a music student at Epson Girls Grammar, where part of the school curriculum was to write a lament about Hiroshima and Nagasaki. It was a pivotal awakening to political reality for a teenaged Catherine Dews. She joined the non-violent waterborne protest launched in the Waitemata Harbour by a group calling itself Peace Squadron. Its aim? 
to prevent armed United States warships from visiting New Zealand. Dr. Kate Dews went on to lobby for the world's first non-nuclear nation, New Zealand Aotearoa, her idea of extending the New Zealand nuclear-free zone comes of the Disarmament and Arms Control Act, 1987. Our nation plays a part in The Hague when the International Court of Justice issues its historic judgment in 1996, deeming the threat to use and the use of nuclear weapons is generally illegal in international law. Suddenly, it seems silent. Yes, it's Christmas Eve 2001. The Southerner Express train deposits us and our bikes nearly 450 kilometres from Christchurch in Balclutha, a rural town of 4,000 folk. Its business is to serve the South Otago's farming sector. Built on the banks of the Clutha River, there's a bridge of many arches crossing over the valuable traffic link. As the express hurries into the distance, destined for Invercargill, I know this passenger express, after thirty years' train travel, will cease a month from now. Its demise shrinks the options for tourists exploring the Catlin scenic backblocks. On a bike is best, particularly cycling these quiet country roads. Our way lies south, fourteen kilometres to the Catlin's coast at Kaka Point where about 300 live permanently. The others come when they can, letting their cribs, batches, lie empty until the day the owners get away to enjoy sun, sand and scenery. This is a wild coast. That's the attraction of camping in the Catlins. As we fall asleep, the crump of waves pounding the shore sounds like a, a distant whispered conversation. Nearly a hundred and fifty years ago, coming from the south on fair winds, an immigrant ship is sailing near this coast, bound for Port Chalmers. Questions of if the charts aboard are up to date or not will come up at a marine court of inquiry, a shipwreck that could easily have become a tragedy with great loss of life. There's no moon that night. The iron sailing ship Surat sails off course along the coast of Otago. The 1,000-ton vessel put to sea from the wharves of Gravesend, 30 kilometres downstream from London on the River Thames. It's a common port of embarkation. The immigrants come upon this wharf amid iron foundries and fisheries. Once going up that gangway, most are destined never to return to Britain. They'll expect to be about four months at sea, a voyage sometimes calm and sometimes stormy. Aboard the Surat, her sails are set to bring her 270 passengers to a destination awaiting this welcome influx of workers, relatives, businessmen, to Dunedin. It's the last leg of the voyage. By tomorrow, on New Year's Day, 1874, Surat should berth at Port Chalmers, all going according to plan. But it doesn't. Already on New Year's Eve there's celebration. For most of them there's promise of employment in Dunedin, friends, prospects of marriage. For others there's heartbreak. Two newborn babies and a two-and-a-half-month-old child perished at sea. 
It happens too often on long voyages. Another expectant mother is in ill health. On this voyage, about half the passengers are children. On New Year's Eve, the sailing ship Surat, having crossed the Southern Ocean, passes Stewart Island. From 20 kilometres seaward, the captain sights Dog Island by bluff, ending his watch. He then socialises with a few of the passengers. An entrepreneur is aboard with employees whose skills he relies on to set up a wool factory in Dunedin, such as in Britain. All the necessary machinery to install is in the cargo hold. English fabrics enjoy fame in the 1800s for their lustrous quality, coming of their fine, long wool fibre. With the abundance of wool fleeces here, and a world market taking up all the processed wool available, it's an enterprise sure to succeed. On this voyage, it's to Dunedin's draperies that Surat brings textiles as cargo. In the hold is also 500 tonnes of railway iron. Sight of land fades as Surat sails on through rain showers into darkness. Aboard, the captain still celebrating New Year's Eve. Navigating by night, Surat's closing on the coast. Cabins fall quiet. Passengers trying to grab a wink before the excitement of disembarking to greet the New Year in New Zealand. Towards midnight... Without warning, the Surat strikes a reef and gets off with an awful ripping of rock and iron. Seawater spurts through the hull. Still under sail, Surat is making way regardless. Meanwhile, a sounding in the bilges confirms the panicked passengers' fears. Despite taking their turns on the pump, nothing will keep the Surat afloat much longer. The captain, seen by some observers to be the worse for liquor, seems reluctant to concede his ship is doomed. Coming upon distraught passengers in the act of raising a distress signal, he produces a revolver to assert his authority as he takes their flag down. Thinking better of his actions, some ten minutes later he commands the distress flag be raised and the Surat steer a course to go aground on a stretch of sandy beach where hundreds of passengers might be rescued on small boats. Ashore, the alarm spreads quickly, thanks to the advent of Morse telegraphy for modern communication. A French man-of-war, moored in a nearby harbour, puts to sea to stand offshore, taking aboard crowds of passengers ferried out on smaller craft. They have nothing but clothes they wore when the ship struck the reef, the rest, the railway steel, the wool factory machines, the drapery and sea chests, is at the bottom. People living on the coast take soaking passengers to shelter, give up their own homes to make room for their unexpected visitors. Meals and refreshments raise their spirits, as the full implications of narrowly escaping drownings sink in. Humanity is at its best when a happy ending unites French sailor and English immigrant in profound goodwill and friendship for each other. On hearing evidence at the inquiry, the court sheets home responsibility for the grounding on the captain and first officer. Finding both in neglect of their duty, the court cancelled their marine certificates, sentencing the captain to two months' prison with hard labour. In the morning light, we awake to a scene ever-changing. 
See a tall lighthouse bolted to a rock promontory. It's this godsend to mariners, blinking light visible far to sea, that for a hundred and fifty years now, worn off vessels from the cliffs that skirt this coast, which could have spared the Surat this disaster, but it's not to be. It's only memory is a sign, pointing vaguely into the bay where a rock reef sunk the clutter of cargo, but let the passengers live. We're now at a time of year when fur and elephant seals congregate, basking on boulders. It's doubtless the same scene as when the hapless captain commands the Surat be beached all those years ago. We wonder what happens to him after he serves its sentence. Our route reduces to a gravel road. As the summer's heat penetrates our packs, it turns our Christmas cake sticky. We agree it's time to take a lunch break. The back of my bike rattles on uneven road. Our cake's crumbling. Better we eat it now than let it fall apart. I carefully take it from the cellophane wrapping before sharing it with Harleko. No one minds crumbs out here. We're in the park of a small town that's the main centre in the Catalans, Owaka. Our bikes lean against a tree over the road from where a trickle of people go in and out of the town's sole cafe bar. On the map, it's near a place they call Cannibal Bay, and I wonder what went on there. Evidently, it goes back to when an early surveyor discovers human bones by the beach. My mind runs over its memory of family holidays at Christmas. Laughter, lots. Wide-eyed kids and our friends enjoyed an abundance of fine food. Parents do what they say we shouldn't, sampling bottles of, of beer and, and wine. On our bicycles in the back blocks, it's so different as to leave feelings of sadness or neglect. I stir a dubious mixture, bubbling on the fierce flame of our little gas cooker. It's my first experience of cycling in the Catlins, and for Harleko, her first experience of a Kiwi-style summer holiday. Seen it in the movies. Now let's see if 
it's true Everybody has a summer holiday Doing things they always wanted to So we're going on a summer holiday To make our dreams come true For me and you first experience of cycling in the Catlins and, for Harlequo, her first experience of a Kiwi-style summer holiday. Any regrets at spending Christmas on bicycles disperses as we pedal with easy cadence along the narrow forested road to Purakonui Falls, 17 kilometres south of Owaka. The falls are one of New Zealand's most photographed natural features appearing on calendars, telephone book covers, company prospectuses, and a postage stamp. As a boy, it seemed to me they lay in dense forests so remote as to make it unlikely I'd ever see them in real life, those falls. It's easy to see the falls appeal, cascading down twenty metres from not one but three broad terraces. Their lush forest would seem typical of Westland rather than here on the South Island's drier east coast. We lock our bikes to walk into a cool, refreshing forest. I remember who introduced me to this gem of a region. He's a veteran cyclist, mountaineer, photographer and rail enthusiast Edgar Williams. In his eighties, Edgar liked staging at his place dinner parties and slide evenings for a large room of guests. Often I'm invited along to meet people in the 1970s who do extraordinary things in life. The one who comes to mind is Edgar's own father, whose historic glass lantern slides have preserved crisp black-and-white images of pioneering days in the Catalans, photos of isolated beaches, steam-driven sawmills, felled trees being processed to go by railway for sale and construction, the rails are pulled up in the 1970s, fortunately before all the bush is milled. It leaves forest reserves such as Purakonui Falls for us to enjoy. In a camera lens I capture the exciting images, backlit tree ferns glowing bright green, of cascading water clicked at a slow shutter speed. We stay a while till the views are etched in memory, as well as in my photographic film. The scenery doesn't end when we resume the road, heading for the coast at the tiny settlement of Papatoe. We camp near the beach on Christmas Day, enjoying an instant soup before sundown. Regardless of rudimentary roads, fast, noisy vehicles, the farm animals over the paddocks chew on contentedly. But if it's action we seek, try just appearing on a bicycle. It's a rare event on these back roads. Torn between fear and curiosity, a herd will sometimes dash away from the road, only to come rushing back to the boundary, following our bikes along on the other side of the fence line till we move out of view. Along a big paddock we sometimes get them running at full tilt, pacing our pannier-laden bicycles. It's fun! Along one narrow, twisting gravel road, the spirited cattle raced down an alarmingly steep hill to get a closer look at us. Suddenly our concern is they might come to grief by gravity, adding to their impetus. 
Will they stop? Stop before the next fence? Next night, we camp at Curio Bay, known for its fossil forests. Its remnants are visible at low tide. We walk among the relics of ancient trees, now rock-hard petrified wood from forests of a conica kind, similar to kauri and Norfolk pines. To think they flourished a hundred and sixty million years ago, the Jurassic Age. Such fossil forests are apparently rare. What violent volcanic eruption buried a once thriving forest under mountains of ash and mud? The evidence is in recognized features in the rocks. An upright stump, its branches snapped off nearby. Over millions of years, the petrified wood changed to a silica material so solid it resists erosion by the ocean. Walking that foreshore now go yellow-eyed penguins, New Zealand fur seals, and late arrivals, like us, humankind. The original forest must have been melancholy compared with today's. In those Jurassic days, there's no birdsong, no penguins to speak of, perhaps a tuataro or two, and probably insects and frogs. From a cliff top, we watch the sun fall behind Stewart Island, its last golden rays spiking black clouds advancing towards our coast. Harlequin and I keep a weather watch till the storm hits. Even under cover, we fear for our nylon tent, whether it will withstand wind and then hail whipping onto the coast. In the dark, we sit up gripping the tent's one flexible pole. Lift it, lift off. This is the Kukuri. This is the Ororua. This is the Karanaweka. This is the Nubi. This is the Karanakuri. Listen next week to Historic Souvenirs on Free FM 89.0, proudly supported by New Zealand On Air, to catch more tales from the back roads on the intrepid bike rides of the South Island based on the late Roy Sinclair's hook, Pedal Power. This is the Karanakuri. This is the Kowawakowinikuri. This is the Karanakuri. And this is the
Thanks for listening to this Free FM podcast. If you want to hear more content like this, you can support Free FM via Patreon. Head to patreon.com/freefm89 to find out more.